Jesus an anarchist? That doesn't sound like the Jesus preached by the political establishment, or megachurch pastors, or even most small-town ministers. Nevertheless, Jesus spoke about a kingdom of God that makes all other political loyalties inconsequential. I'm Cody Cook, and I've written a new book called What Belongs to Caesar. What Belongs to Caesar is a collection of essays about the nonviolent kingdom of God and the violence of the state. The title comes from an account in the New Testament where Jesus says to give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to give back to God what belongs to God. This raises the question, what does really belong to Caesar? Does the government own our lives, our income? Can Caesar make us go to war and kill for him? What belongs to Caesar? Available now on Amazon. This is Cantus Firmus, Kingdom Theology for Christians Without a Country. Greetings and thank you for listening to and or watching Cantus Firmus. I'm Cody Cook and my guest is Connor Boyack. Connor is president of Libertas Institute, a free market think tank, and has published over 30 books and sold over 3 million copies of those books. He's best known for the Tuttle Twins books, a children's series introducing young readers to economic, political, and civic principles. He lives near Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, with his wife and two homeschooled children. Connor, thank you for being here. How are you? Happy to be here. Thanks. Well, so there's been a lot of a lot of projects that you've been involved in that I think are really interesting and, and would be worth talking about. So I loved your book, Passion Driven Education, about homeschool methodology. Uh, I, I referenced it in a recent episode. I did just kind of talking about homeschool resources that I thought were really useful. Mm-hmm. And uh, our family uses the, the Tuttle Twins books. My daughter, Ava, is a huge fan, by the way. Uh, she was explaining. Tell her I say hi. I will. And I was, she had a, a few questions for you as well. Quick ones, if, if you don't mind. Uh, yeah. but I was say, she was explaining what protectionism was to adults in our extended family at age six. So your books were, <laughs> they were noted. Um, so, okay. So the three questions she had, maybe it would be quick, hopefully, but uh, what inspired you to write Tuttle Twins, the, the book of the book series for kids about economics and uh, liberty? Yeah. Uh, when my kids were little, I wanted to talk to them about what dad did all day, which is all this like freedom fighting stuff. And I uh, went on Amazon hoping to find books. There's books of, you know, potty training and the birds and the bees and everything else. And I thought, surely there must be books that teach the ideas of freedom. There weren't for the little kids. And so it was out of that observation that I partnered up with a buddy of mine, Elijah, who's our illustrator. Uh, He shared the same kind of observation. He wanted books for his kids too. And uh, so we did a book. We just had no vision of anything else. It was just, oh, let's make a book. But then people bought it and they wanted more. So then we did another one and another one. And now actually just, I think yesterday, we passed 4 million books sold. So it's it's churning now. That's exciting. Yeah. And and also the cartoon, which is different in its um, uh, mood, I suppose. But it's also covers a lot of the same topics. Yep, absolutely. Uh, um, so my daughter also wanted to know, why do you think it's good for kids to learn about liberty and economics? Um, I I think a lot of people think, oh, let's wait until kids are adults to talk to them about these things or when they're voters, right? Like they don't let kids be kids. And, and to that, I say, well, we, we form our most impressionable habits and long lasting kind of value sets as young children. So why wouldn't we want to understand at a younger age, how the world works and what we think about it all? If parents wait to talk to their kids until they're older, it's going to be too late. Those kids are going to be influenced by teachers and textbooks and TikTok. And so we, I think we think it's important to talk to kids younger so that we can be part of that 
chorus of voices as kids are trying to figure out what they think. I like what you said too about a chorus of voices because it's not like there's not other people who are going to be influencing them. So to have right. to give them some categories for thinking about other ways of approaching it before they go out to the world and get everything else is, is actually helpful. So, okay. That's and right. this last one, I think should be quick, hopefully, which is what's your favorite dinosaur? Oh, my favorite dinosaur. We actually just went to a dinosaur, a little uh, outdoor park in Eastern Utah, saw some cool fossils. Um, I've always kind of liked the stegosaurus. I don't know why that it just, uh, that's kind of my like spirit animal, my spirit dinosaur, I guess. So stegosaurus. That's a good answer. I was worried you'd say triceratops, which she just, which she hates for some reason. <laughs> Stegosaurus is good. She likes the meat-eating dinosaurs, especially. She's real into uh, into some of those guys, a Spinosaurus and whatnot. All right. So, um, okay. So that's not why I asked you on today. I asked you on today to talk about <laughs> a book that you wrote, uh, Christ versus Caesar: Two Masters, One Choice. Um, and before I maybe go into it from my perspective or asking you a lot of questions about it, maybe can you give a brief summary of it and what you were seeking to accomplish when you wrote it? Yeah, there's um, some several, uh, there's several good books out there about uh, anarchism, generally speaking. And there's some good books, too, about Christian anarchism. Um, and uh, I have found those very useful, informative, uh, influential even. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I'd read them a few years back. And uh, I uh, am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, often called the Mormons. Um, so we've kind of got a little different flavor of Christianity, you might say. And, uh, and so I'm someone who believes that uh, my worldview is not in, in kind of compartmentalized, that I have political beliefs completely isolated from my religious beliefs, completely isolated from my social beliefs. I believe in kind of this one great whole concept where everything is intermingling and, and my values and my ethics and my morality is all defined based on a common foundation. And so from my faith, from my kind of uh, flavor of Christianity, we have in our scriptures and doctrines some additional things beyond just the Bible that also support uh, this kind of uh, anarchist, voluntarist uh, type of outlook. And no one had written about that, really talked about it in any significant way. And it's something that I myself have come to believe. So I thought, why not now take the opportunity to share these ideas with others? And, and you mentioned the word anarchism here. Would you define yourself more, more of an anarchist or a libertarian? Um, probably, I, I wouldn't call myself either. I mean, I've started just calling myself Christian. And then people are like, I'm Christian too. I'm like, well, let's talk about what being a Christian actually means from a political context, you know, yeah. loving your neighbor and, and so forth. And, uh, and so like libertarian, like, yeah, sometimes I'll use that, but that word has a lot of baggage and people have these perceptions about what it means. So they'll just kind of tune you out. Anarchist is, is like a very loaded term to a lot of people. They immediately conjure just this kind of pejorative, bomb throwing, horrible society collapsing type of individual. Um, and so sometimes I'll call myself a voluntarist, which no one knows what that means, but it has this positive flavor. And then they ask what it means and it allows me an opportunity to talk to them about it. Uh, so I'll usually say sometimes, I, I don't know, I kind of bounce around depending on the audience, but of late, I like to just call myself Christian uh, because it gives a common foundation with a lot of people. And then we can talk about like our differences of uh, interpretation on uh, various scriptures that I think a lot of Christians are not accurately and fully applying. Yeah, that, that's that's an interesting answer. And and I think, yeah, from a Christian perspective, I do think we uh, we ought to be not worshiping the state, which is so weird that, that that's debatable. Um, but but there is also something I remember there was somebody I met who uh, was telling me uh, about his, his you know, it's like, oh, my son's a pastor of this church. 
And uh, I said, oh, what's the denomination or whatever? And he said, they just believe the Bible. And I thought, come on, man, everybody says they just believe the Bible. Give me a definition <laughs> so, or give me a, yeah. give, me a, give me a flavor, you know? Um, yeah. But, but, but no, no I, I agree with you. There's, there's something in Christianity in the New Testament, this kind of kingdom mentality that puts it in conflict with the world. But I think that's a, something we need to spell out maybe in conversation, right? So, um, so I was interested in this book. I picked it up originally thinking it might just be another book. Uh, making sort of an argument for Christian anarchism. I knew you were Mormon, but I guess I wondered if it might be more just kind of broad. And you you do that. You do that kind of, here's the here's what the Bible says and, and, and what Christianity teaches as a kind of a general broad thing. Uh, but you also develop a Mormon argument or, or a Latter-day Saint argument for libertarianism or even anarchism. And I thought that was really interesting. And, and I want to say unique, although it's not entirely unique because uh, my understanding, I recently read uh, read through again, uh, Christianopolis's book uh, about Christian anarchism, where he mentions uh, that this kind of tradition of Mormon anarchism, which I was not aware of until I read that book. But um, yep. so I don't want to get into too many like big picture, like theological differences between like Mormonism and, and I guess what I'd call like Nicene Christianity, like the kind of traditional kind of yep. pre-Mormon you know, whatever, because um, I think that would take us too far afield. But I, I would say, suffice to say that we share belief in the inspiration of the Bible, uh, the centrality of Christ, but uh, uh, Mormons also have additional scriptures and views about God and Jesus, which are different than uh, the way a lot of traditional Christians would see it. Um, and and, um, it, and depending on, you know, so, I, you know so, some people see that as the difference or so much we should think of as different religions, but there's also a lot that's shared too. So it's kind of sometimes hard to dissect those things. Uh, you know, what, what, what counts as what. Um, but what, what we do have in common are those scriptures uh, in the Bible. So what I guess I'm interested in is what, what's our common ground stuff? Um, you know, what, what would you and I agree together if we were to sit down and, and look at and say, this is what uh, our, our religions teach. But also, what does Mormonism add to this question? What, what, um, what, do, what do its unique texts and traditions add to a no king but Christ approach? Yeah, this is a fun question for me. I, I really enjoy this because I'm, I think a lot of people are uh, open to division. Let's look at our differences and contrast and where we disagree. And I think what we could use a lot more, certainly in the liberty movement, I mean, libertarians and all their infighting and just, in my mind, total waste of time and energy. Uh, but so too in a religious context. I think we need to have more conversations about kind of common ground and, and stuff and then see where that goes. Um, what I would say to this is, I mean, the, the simple answers are, uh, when I think of um, certainly the Old Testament, the New Testament, again, like no king but Christ and, um, and and choosing no other gods before God, he's a jealous God. We need to have an eye single to his glory. We shouldn't, you know, worship any idols. Well, what are idols? Not these dumb statues. It's not, it's, not, it's not that the children of Israel just thought that like, okay, a calf made of gold is suddenly God. No, it was this, this attempt to um, ascribe to something the source of their uh, provision and protection. In other words, this is this is the arm of flesh. This is what's per, uh, taking care of us, giving us meals, um, uh, making sure that we're fed and, and secure. And, and rather than ascribing to God these blessings and being the source of taking care of us, we're looking to man and these kind of mortal institutions and creations. And, and so when I say like, because I tell people like, we're as idolatrous as the Israelites were. We're just more sophisticated about it. People are like, oh, what are you talking about? We don't, you know, don't worship statues and i'm like i know that's why it's more insidious like you don't see that you're actually worshiping the state um and and that you know this is a counterfeit christ 
this is a, a counterfeit for God in terms of uh, who actually provides for our security and uh, who we should rely on from day to day. My favorite scripture in all the Bible, uh, if I were to have a favorite, is you know when the apostles are being beaten after Christ is dead and they throw him back on the streets. Stop preaching in this guy's name. You're creating contention. And then and then they keep you know preaching in Christ's name and they're brought back and thrown in prison and beaten again and they're brought before the the uh, chief priest and the chief priest is like, why are you doing this again? We told you to stop. And, uh, and, and Peter says in reply, we ought to obey God rather than men. And, and to me, the biggest problem that Christianity has is that they fail to see how much conflict there is between Christ and men. A lot of people create this like syncretic religion almost where they infuse Christianity with their kind of like statist, political, nationalist, whatever. And they feel like they can, um, uh, you know, fuse the two together where, oh, there's no conflict here. I'm a Christian and I'm a Democrat or a liberal or a Republican or whatever. And uh, and I think fundamentally, if you look at Christ, and when you talk about turning the other cheek and, and when you talk about loving one another and loving God and what that actually means in a political context and using the state, which is fundamentally in conflict with love, um, you know, you, you, those, those two are at odds, man and religion. So when Peter, or man and Christ, and so when Peter says we have to obey God rather than men, I think that is a far more significant scripture than just in the instance of, you know, preaching when the government or whoever tells you not to or something like that. It's like this this question of like, when are God and man in conflict? And 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 to what extent is that applying in my life where I don't even realize it? So I, I think the Bible has like Romans 13, we can talk about and all these like attempts that people say, like, we just have to submit to the law and all these things. But um but I think fundamentally, like the greatest two commandments upon which hang all the law and the prophets, meaning all the Old Testament and all the prophets between then and, and Christ, Christ is saying like all of it depends on loving God and loving your neighbor. And I think there are some significant political ramifications when we talk about what does it mean to actually love uh, one another. Yeah, that, that's great. And it, it makes me think of uh, one quotable line in your book, which was that Caesar refuses to answer to a higher power. And, and you're not mm. just talking about the individual, uh, the Roman emperor, uh, but this idea of this, the state. Caesar is kind of a stand-in for the state. Uh, and can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because I think it's significant to what you were, what you were just saying. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, my, my flavor of Christianity leads me to conclude, as, as it talks uh, quite a bit about in the Bible, is that, uh, you know, Lucifer is this, like, fallen son and, uh, and that he, as the devil, wants to lead us astray from the path back to God. And just as he tempted Christ uh, in many ways, including, you know, saying, hey, all the power and wealth of, of this world, I will give to you. It's mine. Right. I, I will impart unto you. Right. Um, I, I think that happens today. I think similarly, Lucifer and his minions are, you know, across the world, influencing people in our you know, hearts and minds to uh, to use this, the power and wealth that the state provides us um, that inherently corrupts us to take us astray from God's path. And so. I think Caesar is kind of this mortal uh, manifestation of Lucifer. It is like the, these earthly governments are implementing this Luciferian antichrist uh, coercive approach to creating society, so-called, versus, you know, the Christian attempt of persuasion and love and, and patience and, and you know, uh, long-suffering and forbearance. And so to me, Caesar is really just Lucifer. It is, it is the counterfeit Christ. It is someone claiming that they rule, that they have power, that they have wealth, 
uh, when in reality there is no king but Christ and all power and wealth and property and everything comes from him and he controls everything. So uh, I use Caesar in this abstract term. And of course, Caesar, Lucifer thinks he's in charge. He doesn't recognize the authority of, of Christ. And uh, so too, I think Caesar, quote unquote, uh, you know, wants to be the God, wants to be superior. When you look at court rulings and all these things, and uh, when it implicates religious freedom, those things are often set aside because the state is the authority. The state is the parents' patriot, the kind of father of the nation. I am your father. I am the source of your security and your safety. And uh, and fundamentally, when, when Peter goes to the chief priest, uh, or if we go to the government and we say, sorry, I'm obeying a higher law, I don't recognize your authority, that, that authority, that Caesar, is not going to take kindly to that because they perceive themselves as the supreme authority. Whereas, you know, you take Jehovah Witnesses or like any number, like Quakers and others through history, where in pursuit of their religious uh, expression, they have defied the Caesars of their day. Caesar is never like, oh, okay, that's fine. If you believe that God is overruling us, we'll let you do that. No, Caesar is never going to tolerate us claiming that we are breaking Caesar's law in pursuit of obeying God's law. It never ends well. And that's because Caesar sees itself or himself as the supreme authority. That's interesting. You know, I, I, I was thinking as you were talking about Lucifer is kind of a type of, uh, or sorry, Caesar is kind of a type of Satan. Um, I, I, I imagine maybe some people hearing that and, and thinking, well, that's, that's a little extreme or that whatever, but it, it, it occurred to me, um, you know, and this was, some of the research that came out, especially when I was working on a book I wrote called Fight the Powers, is that when the Bible is, especially the Old Testament, is talking about Satan, um, the, two, the two main places where it does, it puts, it places him um, in, well, let me see, it compares him to pagan leaders. So like the, the king of Tyre and the king of Babylon are used as these kind of proxies for Satan because of, because what they do is so much like uh, mm. what Satan does, that sort of that pride, that desire to rule and, and to put, put oneself above God. So that is pretty fascinating. And actually even, um, I think the, the, the Essenes and the Qumran community represented yeah. these roles, they sort of see this parallel fight happening in the spiritual realm and the physical realm. So that as Caesar is attacking God's people, you also have Satan who's leading his charge against the angels. Uh, yeah. And so th th there it's, you know, it, it sounds like an extreme thing to say, but it's, it's, it's very biblical and, and within that sort of tradition of Judaism and Christianity. Hmm. Um, and you, know, you said something earlier about, you know, common ground, finding things that, that we agree with. And, you know, at the end of the day, we can, we can look at each other and think that the other group is wrong and, and that's fine and worth talking about. Um, but we still are going to have to live together. And I think that does mean finding common ground, finding areas where we can agree. And, and, you know, for me, that's, you know, anar sort of anarchism is, is connected with my following Jesus, but it's also something that I can say, well, maybe this is something we could all sort of agree on. Maybe you're not going to agree with me on Jesus, uh, you know, some atheists or, or Hindu or Muslim friends or whatever. Uh, but I think we can hopefully agree that we should be able to live together and not hurt each other and, you know, mind each other, mind our own business and that so on and so forth. Right. Um, and so, um, I think, you know, with that in mind, it's interesting, um, some of the stories you share in the book about the oppression of Jehovah's Witnesses, who, um, you know, traditional Christians would disagree with and Mormons would disagree with. When I sort of think of, when I sort of think about like Mormonism and, and um, Nicene Christianity and Jehovah's Witnesses, I sort of see it like as a spectrum, like over here is Jehovah's Witness religion, here is like Nicene Christianity and over here is Mormonism. And so right. they seem like opposites in a way. So it's interesting um, that you cite them. 
um, in, in one of the recite stories about them, one of them is, is a story about Jehovah's Witnesses basically beaten and ran out of town because they didn't respect the flag, the American flag. And I feel like listeners who aren't necessarily anti-government might say that, well, of course, it's wrong to harm people uh, for minding their business, not hurting anyone, following their religious values. But as you point out in the book, that's what the state does. I mean, the, the, the job of the state in many cases <laughs> is to go after people who aren't hurting anybody. Um, yeah. And that's that's okay for them to do when it's not okay for anybody else to do. And why is that? It's because the state is not just uh, law enforcement, keeping the peace, what we like to think of it. Uh, the, the, the state is basically the executive arm of enforcing the doctrine. I mean, when I talk about the Caesar being this counterfeit, in the book, I list several examples of how like, okay, we have scripture. Well, you know, Caesar has his own type of scripture and we have temples and okay, Caesar has temples. I mean, go to Washington, DC, they're all over the place. These venerations of, you know, the government and the apotheosis of George Washington and this, all these kind of things that are like cultish and religious. Yeah. You know, the uh, Caesar has, uh, you know, we have seminaries of learning and teaching the, the young, you know, the doctrine and, you know, that's what schools are from this. So like you have all these counterfeits where, um, the state has to enforce its its dogma. And so when I look at someone like um, Jehovah Witnesses or whatever, the issue fundamentally is that, uh, I mean, we know this from the most extreme authoritarian states. They always go after the children. They recognize that they have to indoctrinate the rising generation in order to perpetuate this narrative that, you know, the Caesar, the, you know, totalitarian government or whatever is, you know, supreme and allegiance is owed to it and dissent is not allowed and all these things. So they always have to go uh, after the young. And, and so what's fascinating to me with the Jehovah Witness case is in the example that you cite that I share in the book where it's all about the Pledge of Allegiance, it started with a third grader uh, who, who didn't want to pledge allegiance to the flag. And then their church president, Rutherford, kind of blew it up and got other Jehovah Witnesses to join in in kind of silent protest. And that led to the court ruling and, and everything uh, following it where, um, where I talk about in the book. But fundamentally, this was a kid who was trying to express his religious views and be concerned about, you know, this kind of nationalist um, ritual that a lot of people go through, that that child was taught by parents or felt himself that uh, that was at odds with his religious faith. And, and so, like, what's the harm to anyone? What's the big deal? In fact, it was a Quaker judge, a judge who happened to be Quaker, in that kid's case, who was like, do we really think that the best way to encourage loyalty to the government is by coercing kids into these oaths, right? And he was overturned later by the Supreme Court. But uh, but it, it goes to show that I think what the state cannot tolerate is dissent. But, but more fundamentally, the state cannot tolerate um, people who are counter to its narrative. It needs to enforce this narrative of its own supremacy. And, uh, and I think it relies on all of us like kind of remaining plugged into the matrix because once people start, you know, waking up or whatever and recognizing that the state has no inherent authority, it's that shift in narrative or perception that is, I think, the biggest threat to the state because to the extent that we all believe that like, oh, it's, you know, majority rule and this is the price that we pay for a civilized society and like all these narratives, once that shifts and we don't believe that anymore, the state is over because we only tolerate its monopolistic, coercive, authoritarian thuggery based on these narratives that we believe and have been taught since we're young. You chip away at that narrative and it's game over, which is why I think the state is so ruthless when it comes. Look at Peter Schiff's dad, Erwin Schiff, trying to say, like, I don't have to pay taxes. They chain him into a bed. He's like an 80-year-old guy with cancer. He died in prison 
right? It wasn't that they needed his money. It wasn't that like, hey, give us your, you know, 20. It was the narrative shift that the state cannot let ideas like that get out because Julian Assange, right? Like same thing. It's the people who are a threat to the narrative that are the most ruthlessly punished. Yeah, I, th I think Walter Wink said something about this, how the state can tolerate disobedience, but not disloyalty. Right, yeah, I like that. political prison prisoners are the ones who they're most afraid of, not people who you know rob banks or whatever. Because at the end of the day, the bank robbers don't necessarily challenge the existence of the system or the state; they just don't feel like following it. Right. I'm writing this down. That's a good quote. I'm gonna look it up later. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he said it exactly like that, but that's how I kind of how I remembered it more or less. Cool. Um, but yeah, so. Okay, so we've, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, they make separation from government a clear requirement for, for their people, right? Um, and that's one thing, apart from all the things I disagree with them on, that's one thing I, I sort of admire. Um, but the Mormon church seems to have a more complicated relationship with the state, right? So at least historically, so early Mormon leaders and prophets like Joseph Smith and Brigham Young uh, sought and sometimes obtained high political offices, uh, the Mormon church uh, has seen, I don't know, maybe you could, maybe you might parse this differently, but what way I've heard people say it is they, they see the, the U.S. Constitution as an inspired document. Um, and so in light of these kind of wrinkles, why do you argue that LDS beliefs are more consistent with libertarian or even anarchist principles than kind of a patriotic American type, <laughs> type viewpoint? You know, what I like to remind a lot of people in my faith is that uh, we fled the government. Uh, you know, the early Mormon pioneers after Joseph Smith was assassinated and after mobs were allowed to just run amok and burn down houses and, and harm and kill, you know, early Mormons with, with, you know, the sheriffs and the constables and the governors just standing by and being like, oh, I'm not going to do anything about it. The, the Mormons were like, screw this. Like, we love the Constitution. We love what America stands for, but you're not protecting our freedom of religion. So we're out of here. And they go west and they flee the country. And so I remind uh, people of my faith when they're all pro-government and whatever, I'm like, guys, like you've seen, we, our ancestors have seen, you know, what government ultimately is when you, again, run counter to that narrative or whatever. And so um, it's interesting, too, because our faith, uh, our, our flavor of, of Christianity, having this kind of added scriptures and modern revelations, uh, has, there's all kinds of interesting nuggets in there of additional things that support this idea. Uh, one in particular I like, so we have this, it's called the Book of Mormon. Uh, uh, Joseph Smith uh, discovered these gold plates, translated them with the gift and power of God. And now we have this added scripture, which fundamentally just talks about Christ's visit to what we now call the American people uh, before Columbus and way back in the day. And so uh, the Book of Mormon is this narrative and the story of these people. And there are all kinds of things happening there that describe the, basically the power and the um, destructiveness of the state. All these examples of literally calling like taxation theft and showing the destructiveness of kings and centralized authority and ongoing warfare and talking about the importance of decentralizing authority and spreading it out and following God's law instead of following man's law. And so as kind of an added buttress from our faith to the Bible in some of these instances that we've talked about, there's all these additional examples that I wanted to surface for people of my faith and others who may be curious. Like if you're ever talking to a Mormon and trying to convert them to, you know, like you can talk about the Bible and you should, but it's like, hey, in your own scriptures, you've got like X, Y, and Z as examples. Um, I think even of like more modern church history, right? Like when the, some of the early Mormons were being polygamous and doing their thing that way and claiming that was a central part of the religion at the time, um, 
you know, the government came after them. The Republican Party literally was founded for two specific reasons. They called them the twin barbarisms. They wanted to eradicate slavery and polygamy. That was the, the mm. platform of the Republican Party when it was founded. And, uh, and so, you know, they came after Utah and they, literally the military was sent out to Utah to crush uh, Governor Brigham Young's kind of resistance and kind of force the territory of Utah into compliance. It, it was perceived as a very hostile threat this kind of uh, idea of polygamy or whatever. And so, um, look, I, I'm not a polygamist. I don't believe in that. I don't I don't uh, agree with it or whatever. But like, again, you have someone like a Jehovah Witness or an early Mormon polygamist or whatever, and they believe that that's the expression of their faith. And then here comes the state using its coercive power to crush them. So I, I remind people of my faith that our modern history and certain our scriptural history, in addition to the Bible, is full of examples of why the state is counterfeit, why it's evil, our modern revelations have additional uh, kind of emphasis on Lucifer and talking about some of his motives and what he was trying to do. And so it's those things that I can use in addition to the Bible for people in my faith community to say, like, like, stop, like, supporting Mitt Romney, for heaven's sakes. Like, like, if you want to live the full, the, the fullest expression of our faith in a political context, like, what, how would I vote and who would I support and what would I do if I wanted to be a quote unquote faithful Mormon? what I would call just a faithful Christian in general. And, and then I say, okay, there's some very clear examples. You shouldn't be forcing your neighbor to pay for the soccer park you want. You shouldn't be voting for that guy who's gonna raise taxes on the 80 year old woman who's on a fixed income and, and can't afford it. You shouldn't be using the state to do to other people what you yourself would find immoral to do directly to those people. And look here in the scripture, uh, scriptures are all kinds of examples. And so it, it serves my purposes pretty well that in our added scripture, there are these other references that I can use to, to point out. Because I think one of the challenges, if I might uh, say it this way, to the Bible is that it's a very long document. And it, or, uh, not long, it was published long ago. And it's the compilation, I mean, the, the, the Bible, the, the word Bible, Biblia, it was, it was a collection of books, all these letters and and books that early scholars and, and you know priests and so forth were cobbling together. And there were different compilations going around until they kind of standardized. And they've been translated multiple times and some of the original context is lost. So it's hard for us this far out in, in history to really kind of understand in a lot of cases what was happening in these stories. Uh, one of the benefits we have, I would say, of being a newer religion, a more recent religion, is that the memory is a little fresher and these stories are far more colorful. And so when I am talking to people of my faith, I'll start with the colorful things that are far more explicit and, and can persuade people, but then I'll have the Bible there to kind of be an added support for me. Well, and um, to maybe just, I don't want to give away too much of the book, so I think it's an interesting book and people should read it. Um, can you give, maybe just cite one example from kind of your own text, your own tradition that you think is a really significant one that you would use to support kind of a Christian libertarian or, or Mormon libertarian or Mormon anarchist viewpoint? Oh gosh, which one to choose? There's a bunch of fun ones. Um, I'll, I'll share one that, uh, so, so Joseph Smith, right, he does the Book of Mormon, he starts this church and everything. And uh, he was asked by the publisher, the editor of a newspaper. He's like, hey, we're hearing a lot about these Mormons. You know, what do y'all believe? What are you about? And there were a lot of these little pop-up religions, right, in early America. They were all over the place. So Joseph Smith takes pen in, in hand or and uh, quill or whatever he's using at the time. And, uh, and he writes down what, what we now call the Articles of Faith. It was an attempt to briefly summarize the Mormon faith. Uh, in a very concise way that could be published in a newspaper. And our church uses this today just as a simple expression of belief. It's like, hey, you want to know what Mormons believe? Here's a list of 12 tiny little, 
you know, things. We believe in God the Father and in Jesus Christ and in the Holy Ghost. And we believe in faith and baptism and repentance and blah, blah, blah. Well, there's an article of faith in there that talks about, much like Romans 13, I would allege, has not only, I would say, been mistranslated, but also really just misunderstood, especially when you look at Romans 12, talking about love and everything. And then suddenly people are reading chapter 13 and submit to whatever the government says, no matter what. And it's like, okay, you have to reconcile chapter 12 and 13 because there was no division in chapters back then. He was just continuing one long you know, letter. And so people get hung up on Romans 13. Same thing with this article of faith. Uh, it says something, I'm going to try and quote it. I'll get it 90% right. But it's, uh, we believe in being subject to kings, rulers, you know, presidents and magistrates in obeying, honoring and sustaining the law. And so, you know, Mormons uh, have modern Mormons have really in, taken that interpretation to just say, we will follow the law. Our leaders say that we follow the law. We're law abiding people, la, 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 la. And so I share the example in the book during World War II, when here you have the Joho witnesses that are like, hey, Nazis, we're not pledging to your flag. We're not joining your military. We're not doing these things. We're trying to follow God's law. We mean, you no know, ill will. We love you as our brother. But, you know, we stand by our beliefs. And what happened to them? They were decimated. They were incarcerated. They were executed. They, you know, scattered. Like, it was horrible for them because the Nazis could not tolerate that. Whereas the Mormons at the time ingratiated themselves. They're showing the Gestapo, like, hey, we're law-abiding people. They're, they're stripping from their curriculum at the time any references to the Jews, which Mormons and Jews have a very kind of kindred uh, spirit thing going on. And so uh, they, they take the Jewish stuff out of the curriculum to appease, you know, the Nazis and all these things. And so they've been over backwards to ingratiate themselves with the Nazi overlords to the point where the Mormons end up being fine and they can continue their uh, worship services. And so it's this question of like, do you stand your ground and then get slaughtered by the state? Or do you like, like, you know, work within the system? And that's a top loaded topic for another day, but that's what the Mormons chose to do. And so um, in our modern church, it's this very much this, hey, we are law-abiding people. Our article of faith says you, you believe in being subject to kings and rulers and presidents and obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. So we, we follow our leaders and we follow the law. But what I point out in the book is that's not really what that article of faith is saying. It's saying, you know, we believe in being subject to these leaders in, it's almost as if it's saying in their obeying and, and following the law. In other words, we will submit to authority figures provided that they are following the law. Not just we will do whatever we're told by authority figures and we will follow their laws. It's that these rulers have to be following the law. And then so then I raised the point, what is law? I mean, I, I think law is a very impreg uh, impregnated term almost. And it's not just whatever Congress says or whatever the Gestapo tells me it is, or it, it's not just like mandates. Law is, I, I talk about this in the book a little bit, this contrast between like the laws of the land and the laws of the sea and this concept that the laws of the land, when we say we follow the laws of the land, it's that we're following God's law. And that any congressional act, any Gestapo mandate or whatever that is inconsistent with uh, God's law is not actually a law. We do not morally and ethically and even you know lawfully have to follow it because it's an, an unjust mandate. So if I were to summarize uh, this lengthy uh, answer to your question, it's, it's that in this article of faith, our modern church has, I think, misinterpreted it in favor of this statist uh, approach where we will just be good citizens, we will do what Caesar says, um, and it's really eroded within our faith community, this analysis of, well, wait a minute, which laws are okay and which are not? Do we just follow good and bad laws? Or is there some nuance there where we can suss out, like Peter did with the chief priest, what happens when, 
what you know soldiers are telling you um, is contrary to what God has told you. And, and that is really absent from our modern church culture. And it's something that I kind of feel like needs to be reinfused because it's in our scriptures and it's in our early history. It's just that the modern church culture has kind of moved away from that. And I think incorrectly so. So um, we're kind of scheduled for only just a few more minutes. So I don't, I don't want to keep you longer than... I can go for 10 or 15. I can, I can get a little bit closer to the hour. Okay. Well, thank you. So I'll tell you what... I've kind of got two tough questions and then I've got kind of a softball total twins. Maybe not actually not that much of a softball, but, but maybe not quite as tough as these two. Um, sure. So if you're, you're cool that I'll ask these two. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I'm sure you, you know, the sort of common objections that people raise to Mormonism. And uh, one of them you brought up yourself. So I don't feel too bad bringing it up, which is polygamy. And the other example is um, how certain traditions or texts um, that seem to suggest um uh, what do I want to say? How do I want to say this? Uh, kind of a, a negative view of, of people of color, right? Sure. So, uh, on the polygamy question, I think you know, I think it's very unlikely that the Republican Party was was super concerned about the subjugation of women in the 19th century. I think that probably they just thought Mormonism was new and weird, and they were going to push back because that wasn't our tradition. Um, but, so I doubt that was much of a concern for them, but people today will, will bring up how, you know, sometimes, and especially like these sort of secret cults, including like the fundamentalists LDS, right, the FLDS, right. uh, will use polygamy as kind of this way to sort of, uh, abuse women or, or, you know, uh, almost enslave them, objectify them. And so I think, uh, one question that comes out of that, that, that people who are maybe curious about like the, the ideas of libertarianism, uh, but aren't sold on it. They'll say something like, well, you know, can't liberty just be this banner that you sort of hide things behind, like, uh, you know, polygamy or pedophilia or whatever. And so that was that was one question that, that I sort of had is, is um, um, just this kind of question of applying liberty and whether there can be uh, drawbacks that could be counter to what the, the claim of, of liberty is supposed to be. Um, and then the second question has to do with the fact that as I read the Tuttle Twins um, and I, I read your thoughts on libertarianism, you don't seem to me like somebody who has a racist ideology. I, you seem to be someone who sees, uh, has this philosophy of as humans as equal. Um, you don't give any class of humans the right to rule over others. Tuttle Twins are really good about uh, representation and universalizing philosophy of liberty. Um, but uh, Mormonism has been seen in the past as having some racist views um, perhaps most troubling, um, I think Mormon leaders like Joseph Fielding Smith and Orson Pratt seem to argue that in uh, their pre-existent, pre-physical forms, the spirits of what would become Black people were less virtuous and were thus placed into Black bodies as a form of punishment. So uh, how can this teaching be reconciled with the church's current teaching, which is more open, uh, as mm -hmm. well as with your own libertarian views. So there's, there's, there's a, two big, big questions there, but polygamy and uh, the, con the apparent conflict of Mormonism's past teaching on uh, people of color versus the universal, universalizing philosophy of liberty and what the Mormon church's view today. So I'll start with polygamy. Um, th there, there is actually kind of contention between uh, who actually started polygamy and for what purpose. There's some evidence to suggest that Joseph Smith uh, never actually was polygamous. I think this is actually strong evidence. People are always like, oh, he married a 14 year old and he married all these people. And that's what you can find on the internet. Uh, there is zero evidence whatsoever that there was any consummation of any of those marriages. What Joseph was introducing is this idea of eternal ceilings 
uh, in, in, in other words, like eternal marriage and, and binding the whole human family together through these eternal chains to perpetuate the family into kind of the afterlife or heaven. And so Joseph had this grand, these grandiose ideas of like, you know, binding himself to all these people to like save them along uh, with him in heaven. And that it was others, Brigham Young and some of these others that followed that didn't quite understand that, uh, that it was a, a religious a theological thing. It was right before his death. And so he wasn't having a lot of time to explain or whatever. And uh, so then they just think, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's uh, polygamy. And so here we go. So like, I, I I'm still, uh, I'm actually doing some research right now about this. And I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the view that, you know, polygamy was not authorized. It was not revealed by God. It was not, uh, um, you know, something that should have been done. Nevertheless, there were many early Mormons that did believe that. And so to, to your question, you know, uh, what about in a libertarian worldview or an anarchist worldview? How would we handle, you know, polygamy being used as a cover for crimes and abuse or whatever to that i've always said like you know there's plenty of that in monogamy <laughs> right like it's it, there's nothing inherent about polygamy there's consent i i know uh, i i live near uh some consensual polygamists they have a wonderful family uh you know their kids are loved and well cared for and it's a different lifestyle but they make it work and there's no abuse and clearly there is in like closed societies in fact our think tank libertas institute just a couple of years ago got the law changed in utah uh polygamy used to be a felony and now it's an infraction like a speeding ticket and we did that specifically because uh, when the state is here punishing polygamy hey you're a felon you know if, if you if we catch you in polygamy what happened it was specifically because of that, that Warren Jeffs, as an example that you brought up in the fundamentalist uh, separate, you know, LDS church, uh, that he would lord that over his followers. He would say, he would say, you have to do this, or you have, I'm going to rearrange this family, or you have to move here, you have to do these things. And you can't do otherwise, because if you do, I will report you, or someone will report you, your children will be taken away, the husband will be taken away. And so there was this threat where he badgered his community into the shadows of society and they become this very kind of cloistered, you know, um, harmed society because of the state's criminalization, because of Caesar. If it was this let live and let live, everything in the open, they could interact freely in society and not fear the police coming and taking them away, they'd be able to like, you know, go to Walmart without any problem or like have, put their kids in school or give birth to their kids in the hospital and not fear that the kid would be taken away. It was because of the state that uh, all these abuses happen, not in spite of it. And so I think uh, in polygamy, and I could go on, but I'll keep it brief just for time. Like, I think that um, in many cases it is it is because of and not in spite of the state that some of these things are issues. I, I don't know that polygamy, though unfavored by many, is inherently problematic, even though I don't choose that for myself and I one wife is more than enough for me. Um, I, I don't think that... Um, you know, you know, to me, it's always been weird that we like, we like look at the, you know, any polygamist is like weird and, and ridiculous and abusive or whatever, when we've always like our societies glorified the, the Hugh Hefners of the world and all these people who are, you know, have their, their uh, harems and all these things. It's like, okay, because I love this person and want to have children and create a family and care for them, that that's bad. But if I just sleep around and that's just like rogue and whatever. Yeah. Well, or, or also, you know, as much as you, you, you hear people kind of on the left who talk negatively about polygamy and I'm not in favor of polygamy, but um, it's sort of weird how that's come. They sort of make an exception for polyamory now, right? That's kind of a normal, uh, acceptable way of raising a family. But but polygamy is is not so even though it's like pretty much the same thing. Uh, but 
maybe it's because of, I don't know, maybe in polyamory, the fact that you've got, you know, blue hair and, and, and different pronouns <laughs> or something makes it different, but, um, or that okay. it's not religious, right? If it's secular, it's okay. <laughs> there we go. If, if you believe in God, then that's a problem. Yeah. Let, me, let just... me tackle the the the, um, the black thing uh, briefly. You know, th this is an example where um, I don't think any of this had to do with God. What, what's interesting is you look at Joseph Smith, and he he ordained black people to the priesthood. Um, I, I think it's wrong to conclude that Mormon past Mormons with their positions on blacks. Uh, that it was racist in a pejorative sense. You can argue that it was racist in a segregationist sense that like black people were treated differently or considered differently. I think that's appropriate, but racist is a very loaded term, right? That like, oh, you're tarring and feathering them and like kicking them out of the bus or whatever. Like even when those very same Mormon leaders had those positions uh, about black people from a theological standpoint about, you know, worthiness or ability to be ordained to the priesthood, they could be members of the church. Many of them were. I mean, you had tons of black people who would go to church, you know, they just couldn't have the priesthood, just like women can't have the priesthood. But that, does that mean that Mormons are sexist because priesthood is just a male thing? So, so it's more of a theological kind of uh, belief. I do believe that some leaders kind of took it too far and said things that could be construed that way. I do believe uh, that. But I don't believe that God ever uh, gave a revelation to our early church leaders. I, I think that was just a cultural type of thing that Brigham Young and others started that I disagree with. And I think that, that was done wrong, which was in part why it was later overturned and said, no, 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 that, you know, that shouldn't have been done. That's the wrong way of doing it. So what does this mean for me and my faith and anarchism and everything? Um, I mean, you look at the Bible and, and God's people were doing stupid stuff all the time, including the leaders and the prophets and, and others. Like these are fallible mortal people in most cases, trying their best, but making mistakes uh, saying wrong things, making wrong choices. And I have a tolerance for that, that I can still believe in God and believe that these are inspired people and that believe that God can use them as an instrument. But it doesn't necessarily mean I have to agree with everything they've done or believe that everything that they recommend comes from God. And so it's that case with blacks and the priesthood. I don't believe it was ever a racist thing from like a, a, a mean racist standpoint. It was more just this theological question of can blacks uh, hold the priesthood and, uh, and again, I, I think a lot of Mormons now, including myself, uh, conclude that that past policy was, was not correct. It was not from God. Uh, and therefore, it's a good thing that that was kind of overcome and got rid of because that was like a cultural, you know, baggage uh, thing rather than any type of like uh, theological or divinely approved thing. So I, I, I'm glad to hear you say you don't agree with that. We don't have so much, I don't want to get too much into Mormonism as a thing, as a whole big movement. But a couple of things that sort of come to my mind as I hear you talking about that. One is then um, it makes me wonder, because I've heard some Mormons talk about, well, so, so and so was a prophet in the church and they said such and such. And so then that has as much weight where it sounds like maybe you're saying that's not always the case. That, that, that That's an interesting distinction. Um, but the other thing is, it does seem to me that, you know, so the, the women not being priests, of course, some, some would say, well, you know, men and women should both be able to serve in leadership positions. But those who don't would say, well, that's because there's a difference between the two. And I think if you're, if, if the church at one point said uh, black people can't be leaders in the church, specifically, maybe because of this story about them having some sort of inferior character in their pre-physical forms, um, that does suggest there's a difference between white and black that's significant um 
and so that that would I think maybe be something that I just sort of think about as I hear you talk about that. But I also know that we're running out of time, and it, it'd be hard to develop. Well, let me let me at least offer a short answer. Yeah. So so you might say that okay, women can't have the priesthood, therefore that's sexist, or black people couldn't have the priesthood, therefore that's racist. Was it? I don't know what I would even call it when that when only the Levites could have the priesthood in mm. the Old Testament. Was that? tribalist like i don't know what the word would be but like some of these early mormon leaders when they were trying to give explanations as to why black people weren't allowed to have the priesthood i think they did wrongly conclude and hmm. assert that it's because they were less righteous and therefore put in black bodies or whatever I, I think that's wrong much as i can see early israelites trying to understand why god said that only levites could do it. well wait a minute i'm i'm a jew and i'm fine and i'm righteous why can't i do it it's like i don't know that's what god said like take it up with him and so, um, so I think it's a similar argument for Mormonism that restricts priesthood to being a male function is like, I mean, I don't know, you know, like, should women have it? I don't know. Um, but, you know, if God wants it that way, then that's the way it is. And uh, granted, Mormons used to reply that way about blacks in the priesthood, because for so long, they thought that, oh, this is what God wants. And so um, yeah. it, it raises an interesting question. But again, like the Old Testament raises the same question about if God wants things done a certain way, who are we to, you know, mm -hmm. say otherwise? And obviously that requires us to understand what God is actually saying and what is actually revealed versus just men trying to do it, uh, yeah. which is a whole other topic of conversation. But, but I think that's the element at play is that fundamentally, if indeed God is saying, here's how I want it done, then come up with all the reasons and justifications you want. But at the end of the day, if God is our king, then like, let's just do what he said. Yeah, I can follow that. Yeah, and I think to, 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 to add to what you said, um, not just the Levites, but Israel, right? Israel is selected from the nations to have the special role. Although sure. the New Testament sort of suggests that those sort of divisions go away. And so I, I think that if any Mormon leaders who, who thought otherwise, I think we're, we're missing what the New Testament was saying about what, what it meant that Christ had brought people together and taken away the barriers. Um, okay, so now that we've, we've, we've talked about the general thing and we've talked about the tough things, I know you got to go, um, but... I just want to ask you really quickly, you've released, you've recently announced a Tuttle Twins history book, which we're looking forward to reading. Mm. So in light of partisan fights about whether history should be lionizing or demonizing America and its history, uh, have you chosen to approach this increasingly politicized and unnuanced now field of American history? Because I, I imagine <laughs> there's a lot of people who are reading your book, hoping to read something anti-woke and pro, you know, pro-America. And are you going to give them that or something a little bit more nuanced? So for those who are watching the video version, I hold in my hands an early, it's, it's digital printed. This is just an early kind of test copy uh, while we're printing tens of thousands of the actual printer. Um, but on the back, you can see this quote, those who don't learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. And the real issue I have sitting over here on my, on my desk over here, a bunch of social studies books that are used in schools across the country to teach about you know, early America, the, the Revolutionary War, the Declaration of Independence and all that. And the problem with all of these books, every single one of them, is that they don't teach kids to learn from the past. They teach kids about the past. And they treat American history as if we're walking kids through a museum and we're like, okay, kids, look, this is what they used to wear. And here's a fork that someone once used for their meal. And here's a cannonball that was fired in this battle. And oh, look how interesting. Who cares, right? Like, okay, sure, interesting. Like, I like museums too, but like that stuff does not help us learn from the past in order to avoid re repeating the past's mistakes. So the book that we are working on and hope to have released in July, which you can find out about at tuttletwins.com slash history, 
is a book that, yes, talks about the things that happened. Here's who said what and when and what battle happened. Like that stuff is history. You need to talk about it. But fundamentally, our book does two things. Number one, it talks about the ideas. What ideas motivated these people? What were they thinking? Why were they thinking it? What influenced them to think that way? Because it's those ideas that we can relate to our day, not the like what they wore and how they fought and what the specifics were of that particular battle or political conflict. It's the ideas, the tension between people and, and, and powerful institutions, right? The oppression of people and how long they can endure it and all these things. And so we talk about the ideas. The second thing is we give modern examples. I mean, why should a kid care about in 2022 what happened in 17, whatever, like ultimately, why should they care? How does it serve them in their life? Well, they don't know unless we help them understand. We got to give them examples. It's like, like if we're talking about, let's say uh, the fourth amendment, let's say we're talking about the bill of rights. Okay. After the constitution bill of uh, fourth amendment, right? No searches and seizures, but based on probable cause, you need a judge's review. It's basically the protection of our, our right to privacy. Well, imagine when you're talking to kids um, about that, that you can then point to the NSA today. It's like, hey, look, why did they do the Fourth Amendment? It's because they didn't like bulk searches. They didn't like the Redcoats writing what were called writs of assistance, permission slips, for themselves to just go search wherever they wanted in the whole neighborhood block. So the founder said, no, 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 no. You need particularity. If you want to search something, you need to articulate like exactly where you're going to go search and not just do this broad stuff. So then if we talk to kids about the NSA and I hold up my cell phone and I'm like, we're being spied on and all of our like, suddenly history kind of connects, the past connects to the present, and I can make a more informed opinion and, and maybe even action based on ideas that happened long ago because there's a connecting thread to what's happening today. So our book offers a lot of questions and things to say like, okay, well, how is this working today? And what do you think about this in your life and so forth? So we think that this is the way that we can actually help kids learn from the past. And, and unless and until we as a society do this for our young people, we're just going to be in this cyclical pattern where everyone's supporting the same dumb crap because they haven't really learned from the past in a way where they can apply it to the present. That's what our book is about. I think it's like, I, I'm just mind boggled that there's nothing out there like this already. And, uh, and so we're very eager to put it out in the world and hopefully uh, July. So at that link, there's a little sign up form for people to join the list if they want the announcement at tuttletwins.com slash history. Uh, so we're hoping uh, in July that we have it out. Awesome. We're, we're excited about it. And, and I, I appreciate, it sounds like you have a similar mentality that I've sort of had when, when I've written books as, uh, as Gandhi, maybe allegedly you said, be the change you want to see in the world. Right. I I'm, I'm a, write the books that you want to read in the world. If you, if, if you feel like there's something totally. missing, fill it in. Um, so anyway, thank you for your time. Um, I really enjoyed uh, not just the, the, the Christ versus Caesar, but, but all of all the books I've read from you so far. Uh, and I appreciate you letting me ask you some tough questions and, uh, I'm glad that we are on Team Liberty and uh, and that we uh, we're you know, sharing that perspective and want to see a world where people uh, can disagree and, and be free and be friends. Absolutely, no, that's that's my mantra in a nutshell. I in my early years was part of the infighting and the let me prove how right I am and which means showing you how wrong you are and that didn't really get me anywhere. Uh, I like this approach much better. It's more endearing. It's more friendly. You kind of uh, build friendship and alliances and, and can persuade other people and, and, you know, have conversation. And so I appreciate being able to be on your podcast. The tough questions are great. I think we need to ask uh, one another more tough questions and have meaningful discussions. So thank you and, and really appreciate it.